0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 277, Was Christ Tempted in Every Way? In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to discuss a really nicely done short piece in Christianity Today magazine, written by the leading analytic theologian, Dr. Oliver Crisp. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Crisp twice, back in episodes 81 and 82, about one of his books. Back at that time, I was still focusing really mostly on Trinity theories and not as much on the very difficult subject of Incarnation Theories. Since then, I've presented more on that topic and written a little bit on it, such as my forthcoming debate book with Chris Date. But back to Dr. Crisp, he's considered a leading voice, I think, for a reason. His work exemplifies the virtues of analytic theology. Analytic theology is just Christian theology done with whatever you think the authoritative sources are, but also using the conceptual tools and the argumentative methods and sometimes the metaphysical, epistemological, ethical, or logical doctrines that are current in analytic philosophy. All theologians are influenced by philosophers, because it's philosophers who discuss a lot of the ground-level issues. Many theologians, I think, are laboring under the influence of really poorly done philosophy— whether it's Platonism or medieval scholasticism, which we've gone beyond in many ways, or just unclear, muddle-headed, continental philosophy of the last 200 years or so. Philosophies, like any human endeavor, it can be done well and it can be done poorly, and most philosophers now working think that analytic philosophy, that particular tradition, shows philosophical investigation at its best. So, analytic theologians are saying, let's take the best and most current tools of careful thinking, of careful theorizing, and let's use those when doing Christian theology. Now, that just sounds like common sense, right? Like, why wouldn't you use the best tools that you have available in doing Christian theology? You'd be surprised how much entrenched resistance there is against analytic theology. Dr. Crisp is in the Reformed theology camp, for sure. But he's not the typical Reformed pastor or apologist that you would run into on the internet. To put it mildly, he's an independent thinker, and he does defend their types of views about divine providence and such. But he's not just out there like some kind of corporate spokesman repeating the party line and just abusing people who disagree. He doesn't abuse. He argues with integrity, and that's why there's so much value in his work. He's written a million papers and book chapters on incarnation. I have three of his books on my shelf. From 2007, his book, Divinity and Humanity, The Incarnation Reconsidered. From 2009, God Incarnate, Explorations in Christology. And from 2016, The Word Enfleshed, Exploring the Person and Work of Christ. And a little bit later in this episode, I'll recommend a chapter in this book, which, if I'm not mistaken, may most fully express his position regarding two nature's Christology. But the first thing I want to say about this piece is that it's really beautifully done. It's clear. There's hardly a word wasted. Dr. Crisp avoids technical terms and sort of theological jargon that are going to throw off the average person. This is something written for the masses, as it should be. And I think Christianity Today is really to be congratulated for publishing a piece like this. I've been a Christianity Today reader since I was in high school. And honestly, sometimes their editorial bias has struck me as kind of anti-intellectual. And it's good to see the evangelical American community embracing its intellectuals. Well, Crisp is English, but he taught for many years at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. So he's not American. But anyway, he's in this American magazine speaking to average American evangelical Christians on a topic of intense interest. And in this podcast, I'm going to go through his little editorial and respond to it. I think it makes a lot of great points. And at the same time, I think if you just take one more step at certain areas in his flow of thought, you realize how difficult two nature's theories about Jesus really are. So the question in his title is, was Christ tempted in every way? Dr. Crisp writes, According to the writer to the Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 Crisp continues, The implications of this statement for Christian theology down through the centuries have been profound. Even today, many a sermon begins by reassuring the congregation that Jesus knows what it is like to undergo temptations as we do because he was like us in every way, sin accepted. But how are we to understand this claim? The Gospels only record temptations that are hard for many of us to relate to. An appeal for Jesus to jump off a building, for instance, or a prayer to avoid the cross— Seemingly absent are the more pedestrian temptations Christians undergo daily, temptations toward cheating, overindulgence, pride, corrupt sexuality, and the like. How should the assurance from Hebrews be of help to Christians today? Just as an aside, that's an interesting comment. It's true that the New Testament writers don't dwell on just pedestrian everyday temptations of Jesus. But at the same time, a lot of the problems he's facing are easy to identify with. People criticizing him, calling him crazy, persecuting him, slandering him. Each of these trials, we think, must have brought along many temptations with it. The Gospels only focus explicitly on temptations, I think, in a few places. But if you imagine yourself in Jesus' role, as I think the reader is supposed to do, I think you'll realize that he's supposed to be understood as a heroic figure who's passing test after test. Maybe we all have our cross that God's calling us to, and maybe each one of us would like to avoid whatever that sacrifice is. And like Jesus, we would pray to be excused. And yet, if we're going to be faithful and if we're going to truly imitate him, we should also acquiesce in God's will when it seems like the answer to our prayer is, No, I'm not going to excuse you from this trial and suffering. I want you to go through it and trust me. Crisp continues, The Jesus of the New Testament Gospels was certainly a human being. Let me pause there. Amen to that. The New Testament everywhere portrays Jesus as a real human being, and it says explicitly a couple of times that he is a man. So you have to rule out that he's, well, a lot of other things that people have thought that he is. An interesting complication here is that some theologians, precisely because of their devotion to two nature's theories about Jesus, would say that Jesus is man, but not a man. And the reason for saying that is that a man or a woman is just by definition a human self, a human person. And in their view... There is a self or person in Jesus Christ, but it's the eternal son or the word of John 1. So if in addition to this divine self, you also add a human self, you've got two selves. So what they say is the incarnate Christ is, quote, man, that man is predicable of Christ, but they don't say that he's a man because that would be a self in addition to the divine self that's in their theory. that's one too many. But of course, all two nature's theorists want to say that Jesus is truly human, not merely apparently human. And some of them will say, like Dr. Crisp, that yes, he's a human being. Now, whether the other elements of their theory are consistent with that is an interesting question that we'll discuss shortly. But Dr. Crisp continues, human beings are tempted, so he was tempted. That much is like us. Yet Christ is not merely human as we are. For the traditional Christian claim is that he is God incarnate. As Charles Wesley's Christmas Carol puts it, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Right, this is his gesture at two natures theory. Obviously it's not held because of Charles Wesley's Christmas Carol. Their view is that this best explains what's in scripture. He continues, But here is the rub. Scripture also says God cannot be tempted. Quote, "When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone." James 1:13. So we have a dilemma. On the one hand, Jesus is like us in every way, being tempted as we are, yet without sin. On the other hand, God is incapable of being tempted. Yet Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. How are we to reconcile these apparently competing claims in Scripture? This is the paradox of Jesus' temptations. Okay, there's a few complications here that we should discuss. When James says that God can't be tempted, what's the referent of the word God there? New Testament scholars will tell you that more than 99% of the time, when it says God in the New Testament, it's the Father. So we have to read this as saying the Father can't be tempted. Okay, but what does that have to do with Jesus being tempted? Because it's perfectly consistent to say that the Father can't be tempted, and Jesus can be tempted. How do you get a paradox out of that? Well, I'm not sure what Dr. Crisp thinks about the Trinity. I kind of have the impression from this article that he may be in the one-self camp, that he thinks the Father and the Son really are one he, despite being different, quote, persons but I'm not sure. And I don't recall really reading anything from him about the contemporary Trinity theories that are out there, but maybe he's reasoning like this. James is saying that the father can't be tempted. And the assumption would be, yes, he can't be tempted, not just for some strange random reason, but he can't be tempted because he's divine. Now that's plausible. If you're understanding divinity in the way that a monotheist does, where we're talking about a perfect being who's all-knowing and all-powerful, who doesn't need anything, yes, it's plausible that divinity entails that one can't be tempted. Okay, so the idea would be that the Father can't be tempted because he's divine, but the Son is divine, and so the Son must also be untemptable precisely because he's divine. Now here, there's a big argument that needs to be had. Why should you think that the Son is divine in the way that the one God is divine? I have a whole book coming out on this based on my recent debate with Chris Date. If you want to hear that debate, it's in Trinity's podcasts number 263 and 264. I think the forthcoming book version will be better. It will be more precise. It'll go more into early Christian history and more into our dueling interpretations of the texts that we were disagreeing about in the Bible. So yeah, it actually needs arguing that Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine. But I think that's an assumption that readers of Christianity today will just spot him. Okay, but let's not argue about that assumption here. Why don't we just give him that for the sake of argument? How do you get a paradox here in the case of temptation? We could spell this out in an argument, right? The assumption is Jesus is human, and because he's human, he's temptable. And also, we're assuming that Jesus is divine, and because he's divine, he's untemptable. So one and the same Jesus can and cannot be tempted, there's your paradox. It looks like you're affirming and denying the same thing. If you take the statement that Jesus could be tempted, it looks like we're saying that that statement is both true and false. And of course, it can't be true and false. That's nonsense. So that's the paradox. Another way I think you could set it up that would be helpful, and I'll put this also in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, is you can consider an inconsistent triad. So there are three claims, and just by logic, they can't all be true. So you have to pick which one you want to deny. And I think it's a nice way of focusing this difficulty in interpreting Christian scripture. So one would be, Jesus is divine. The second one would be, no divine being can be tempted. And the third would be, Jesus was tempted. Right? Take them in reverse order. Why would one want to believe in each of them? Why should you say that Jesus was tempted? Because the New Testament very straightforwardly, in fact, explicitly asserts this multiple times. So, I mean, three is off the table. The Christian has to think that Jesus was tempted. What about the statement that a fully divine being can't be tempted? That's really plausible just when you sit down and consider it carefully. To be tempted, you have to think that some inappropriate course of action is worthy of being chosen. How is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good being going to be made to think that an overall bad choice is worth choosing? They're not going to. They're always going to see an overall bad choice as overall bad. You're not going to be able to get any hook into them. You're not going to be able to move them. Right. Whenever somebody tempts you, typically you know that the thing is wrong that they're asking you to do, but they try to entice you. Oh, come on, it'll be fun, or we'll make some money, or people will admire you. Right, So there's a kind of irrationality that comes in. Even though you know it's inappropriate, you know that it's morally wrong, yeah, you still feel like doing it too because maybe it would feel good to do it or maybe you just have some itch that needs scratching and this would serve that purpose. Yeah, but you can't move God in this way. So two is highly plausible. What about one, that Jesus is divine? Well, for this you really have to mount a complex argument from the New Testament. Because it's not a straightforward New Testament teaching. I would say that one's the weak link. But I think what Dr. Crisp is going to have to say is that we should deny the second. That a divine being can't be tempted. I think he has to say a divine being can be tempted. Okay, so let's see how he proceeds. As if that isn't enough to deal with, the Bible says other things that make matters even more puzzling. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3. Elsewhere, he writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christ is not just made in the likeness of sinful flesh in his human nature, but even becomes sin for us in order to bring about our redemption. Then in Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Galatians 3.13 Christ is made in the likeness of sinful flesh and becomes sin for us by being cursed in the crucifixion. On the one hand, Jesus is like us in every way, being tempted as we are, yet without sin. On the other hand, God is not capable of being tempted this is the paradox of jesus's temptations let me comment briefly on this the obvious way out is that jesus is not god you can't tempt god but you can tempt jesus at least you could at this time because he's not god he's the son of god what kind of son of god is he he's a man so as a man he can be tempted he's not god so there's no problem Why should we just label this a paradox as if it's some phenomenon that's just forced upon us? It's not forced upon us. You don't get into this pickle until you go along with the idea that the Jesus of the New Testament has to be divine in the way that the one God is divine. If you don't say that, it looks like this problem can be resolved. If we're trying to interpret the New Testament books as saying in its main teachings only true things then when we run into an apparent contradiction, we have to go back to the exegetical drawing board and come up with something else. All right? So, for instance, if your view of Christ entails that Jesus died and that it's false that Jesus died, all right, something's gone wrong there. we got to reinterpret some passage, I guess. If you had an interpretation that said that John and Peter were the same apostle, uh, but they were different men, well, it seems like those two claims couldn't both be true that's not, as I just stated it, a formal contradiction, but still you have claims that look like they just couldn't both be true, what you would do is you'd say, well, I guess I made a mistake there somewhere. Back to the drawing board. So keep that in mind. Whenever someone argues that Christians are faced with this mighty paradox, just logically speaking, there's always a way out of it. Just deny one of the steps in the reasoning that got you into that paradoxical situation doctor Crisp continues. Now it might seem this has taken us rather far away from the original point about temptations, but in fact the two things, the temptations of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, are related as far as our paradox is concerned. For if God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil or tolerate wrongdoing, Habakkuk 113, how can he be united with a human nature in Jesus, that is in the likeness of sinful flesh? even to the extent of becoming sin by being cursed on the tree. God and evil cannot mix any more than oil and water. And just as God cannot become sinful, and yet does in some way become sin for us in Christ, so also God cannot be tempted by sin. And yet he in Christ is tempted like us in every way yet without sinning. Okay, so we're talking about God in this paragraph, and he quotes Habakkuk that's Yahweh. That's the one who in the New Testament turns out to be the Father. So God the Father's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And yet then he says, how can he, God, be united with a human nature in Jesus? But God the Father, according to this orthodox line of speculation, is not united to a human nature in Jesus. So this is part of what makes me think that he has a one-self view of the Trinity. It sounds like the father and son are understood to be a single he, namely God. So again, the triune God really turns out to just involve one self. Again, I'm not sure if that's his view. His friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Ray, from the University of Notre Dame, has what is clearly a three-self theory that involves the notion of constitution from contemporary metaphysics. I don't know what Crisp's view is. Okay, he seems to be thinking Jesus and God are the same person, So, if God can't look on sinful flesh, then how can God take on uh, some human nature that's in the likeness of sinful flesh? He continues, What is more, there is a deeper way in which these two claims, about Christ's temptations and about being made sin for us, are related. In reflecting on these different New Testament claims about Jesus, Some Christian theologians from the early church fathers onward came to think that one way to make sense of these different claims in the text of Scripture is to say that Jesus' human nature is a fallen human nature. There is a relevant difference between being fallen and being sinful. We can be in a fallen state without actually sinning. So perhaps Jesus can have a fallen human nature, provided we mean by that a human nature that feels the effects of the fall. A bit like someone who may have flu like symptoms, even if she does not actually have the flu. That may also go some way toward explaining how Jesus may have been made in the likeness of sinful flesh. For like us, he has a human nature that feels the effects of the fall, including things like fatigue, pain, and death. So Jesus has, quote, a human nature, which is traditionally understood as a rational soul and a human type of body. This is among the assumptions that Dr. Crisp is working with. And he's suggesting, well, this is a fall in human nature in that it suffers from the effects of Adam's fall. But this, quote, nature can feel fatigue, pain, and death. It sounds like Dr. Crisp is thinking of this human nature of Jesus as a human person, as a human self. To die a human death is to lose a human life. To have a human life, one has to be a human being, a human self. If it's this nature that died a human death, then this nature was a man. Presumably, it's a human being, a human self, that feels fatigue and pain, not just the body alone. When the Trendies podcast returns, Dr. Crisp raises the question of whether or not Jesus could have sinned. next section he calls the question of capacity he writes suppose that is right how then are we to make sense of the paradox of jesus's temptations with which we began there are two basic views in historic christian teaching one option is called the sinlessness view according to this view jesus is without sin but is capable of sin the idea is a bit like someone who is capable of doing something though they refrain from doing it Suppose Johnson has the capacity to be an NBA basketball player. However, it turns out that he is born into a family that despises basketball and forbids him from ever playing. Non-basketball-playing Johnson still has the capacity to be a great basketball player. It is just that this capacity is never realized because he never has the chance and encouragement to develop that skill early on in life. Similarly, on the sinlessness view, Jesus is capable of sinning, but does not actually sin. He has the capacity. It is just that he never realizes it in action. Just a quick comment here. I think this is the correct view of the matter. I think the New Testament does assume that he could have sinned, and it treats him as someone who was given a reward for his having passed all these trials, such as you see in Philippians 2 and in Revelation 5. Now, some Christians, Trinitarian and Unitarian, get really worried here about this possibility and say, Well, what would have happened if Jesus had sinned? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he would repent and be forgiven. If you're asking, would God like disqualify him from his mission of being Messiah? I don't know. I mean, that's up to God, right? But yeah, being tempted in all things as we are seems to entail the possibility of messing up. Back to Dr. Crisp. He writes, at first glance, the sinlessness view seems attractive. Don't we want to say that Jesus really feels the gravitational pull of temptation, so to speak, but never actually sins? Isn't that like having a capacity that is never realized? The problem with this is that someone who has a capacity to do a thing is still able to do that in the right circumstances. Even if Jesus doesn't actually sin, in this view, he is capable of sinning, But we have already seen that one part of the paradox of temptation is that Jesus is God incarnate and God cannot sin. So if Jesus is God, Jesus cannot sin. Saying that he could sin but doesn't is not enough. We need some solution that means Jesus can really be tempted but is configured so that it is impossible for him to realize the capacity of sin. Right. Here's where he's saying, surely Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine. And surely also God can't be tempted. Not just because it makes sense according to rational speculation, but also because the New Testament just straightforwardly says that God can't be tempted. And presumably this is because of his divinity. Yeah, again, I mean, look, the full divinity of Christ is a conclusion reached by a series of complex exegetical arguments and trying to explain away quite a lot of counter evidence, such as Jesus being limited in knowledge, Jesus saying that somebody else is the only true God, and so on. In contrast, Jesus being tempted, boom, that's just an explicit statement, right? It's not clear you have a strict paradox here, one that you shouldn't just untie by taking back some of the reasoning that you've gone through to get that far due to careful re-examination of scripture. So what he's suggesting is you can have temptation without an ability to sin. Now clearly you can be tempted to do a certain sin and actually at that moment not be capable of doing that sin. You're walking along the sidewalk and you see somebody drop a hundred dollar bill You're tempted just to pick it up and put it in your pocket and act like nothing happened. So you're really tempted to steal it. You you bend down, you pick it up, and you look at it for a second. You ask yourself, should I chase that person down and give them their $100 back? Or should I just count this as my lucky day and effectively steal this money? So there you are being tempted. But maybe unbeknownst to you, there's a mad scientist down the street, and he's looking at you through binoculars. Uh, And he's also scanning your brain. And uh, if you make the slightest move towards pocketing that money, he's going to zap you and make you, I don't know, pass out on the spot. You're feeling the pull in both directions. Should I give the money back because that's the right thing to do? Or should I keep it because I could go have a spending spree with this $100? Even though you're tempted, you're not able to actually steal the money because as soon as you make a move to put it in your pocket, this guy over here is going to zap you and you're just going to fall down and pass out and the money will just blow away in the wind. So yeah, you could be tempted to do something even when you're not actually capable of doing that thing. But of course, that's not the situation that you and I are stuck in, right? Not only are we tempted, but we're facing a real risk of wrongdoing. There might be cases where we would chicken out or where somebody would interfere and sort of save us from doing that wrong action. But in many, many circumstances, we know that we are capable of doing that wrong action. And so we think that we need to carefully steer ourselves through these opportunities and choose carefully. And we think it's somewhat up to us how well our life goes. Now, I think this suggestion really kind of goes against the grain of the New Testament. I don't think any of the New Testament writers consider such a bizarre, sort of unrealistic scenario. But just ask yourself, if Jesus could feel the pull of temptation, but couldn't actually ever give in to any temptation towards something wrong, would it be accurate to say that he's been tempted in every way just as we are? I don't think so. Also, it seems like a being like that wouldn't deserve credit for avoiding any wrongdoing. If you're actually incapable of wrongdoing, but you're going around feeling like you could, the fact that you've avoided wrongdoing actually isn't up to you. That was just determined ahead of time, right? It was not something that was ever, to any degree, under your control. So why does the New Testament present him like a victor, someone who's gotten the crown, someone who ran a perfect race? Crisp continues, Let us turn to another option which we can call the impeccability view. Someone who is impeccable is not merely sinless, though capable of sin. Rather, to be impeccable is to be incapable of sinning. Return to our hypothetical basketball player, Johnson. He has a capacity for world-class basketball that may or may not be realized given the upbringing he has. But not all his capacities are like this. Suppose Johnson is born blind. No matter what situation he is placed in, blind Johnson has no capacity for sight. He is incapable of seeing. The impeccability view says that Jesus is incapable of sinning in a way analogous to blind Johnson's lack of sight. It is not something he can do under any circumstances. Picky point, that's not the greatest analogy because God may well miraculously heal Johnson and in that case he could see. So the case of Johnson doesn't involve somebody who's by his essence blind, who in principle couldn't be other than blind. But yeah, in the case of Jesus, on this theory that he's divine the way that one God is divine, it is just impossible in principle that he sins. Yes, I think divinity does entail that. This is a reason why you should question whether he's divine in the way the one God is divine. Crisp continues, Now this seems to be a good fit with the biblical claim that God cannot be tempted, James 1.13, or that God cannot look upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13. But how can this view be consistent with the idea that Jesus is like us in every way, and yet did not sin as per Hebrews 4.15? This seems to emphasize the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity, making of him a kind of cyborg who feels nothing, though he appears to be fleshly like the rest of us. Right, so his point with this cyborg metaphor is that with a robot, we don't think there is anything going on experientially on the inside. I know a lot of sci-fi is predicated on the opposite assumption, but just say, look at the computer in front of you or the smartphone in your hand. You don't think there's something that it's like to be that thing, right? You don't think it has a first-person point of view. I think Dr. Crisp and I would agree that obviously God does have a first-person point of view, but his point with this cyborg metaphor is that there wouldn't be this type of experience of feeling yanked, feeling pulled, feeling dragged away towards somewhere one knows one should not go. Yeah, if you're immune from temptation, it looks like you shouldn't have that feeling, right? When the Trandys podcast returns, Dr. Crisp asks, Can Jesus feel a gravitational pull to sin? Dr. Crisp continues, perhaps a homely illustration will help. Imagine someone who is an invincible boxer. When he fights, he is hit, he feels pain, he can be bounced around the ring, but it is impossible for him to be beaten. He cannot be knocked out. This is what it means to be invincible. Nevertheless, the boxer can really experience the fight. He can really be affected by the punches of his opponent. It is just that the outcome is secure. Perhaps Jesus' temptations are like that. He really feels them in his human nature, but there is no possibility of his succumbing to them. For like us, Jesus has a human nature that feels the effects of the fall, including things like fatigue, pain, and death. Now, in response to this portion, I'm having trouble parsing this. I think it has to be parsed carefully in terms of what Crisp thinks about incarnation theory. So if you want to know what he thinks about incarnation theory, as far as I can tell, the fullest expression of his view is in his book, The Word and Fleshed from 2016, chapter 6 called Compositional Christology. He goes to great lengths here to explain and defend as coherent a compositional model of Jesus' two natures, which I'll explain in a second. He leaves himself an out at the end, hey, I'm not arguing that this is the correct understanding, but... I don't see why he would put so much work into it unless he were uh, at least feeling strongly tempted towards this type of theory. So it's called compositional Christology because it analyzes the Incarnate Christ as being composed of the Eternal Son or the Word, that Divine Person. And then the other parts would be the rational soul and the body, call those two together the human nature. So there's really three things there in the Incarnate Christ. They're numerically three. Dr. Crisp is explicit that none of these things is numerically identical with any of the other things. Thing number one is the eternal logos, the eternal word, the second divine person, whatever that is, or if if you like, just God. The second thing is the human nature, and that can be broken down into body and soul. And then the third thing is the whole that's composed of those parts, which he calls Christ. So... There is a person here. Weirdly, it's not Christ. The person is the Logos, the Eternal Son. It's God. That's the person. The composite Christ isn't a person, and the human nature isn't a person. Because you you can't have more than one person in your theory. That's crazy. That just won't fit with the New Testament. Now, using the word Christ for something other than the Son of God, and for something other than Jesus, that's not biblical usage, and it's kind of jarring and weird. But anyway, he has to distinguish the whole from the proper parts. And the whole is this Christ, which isn't a person. And then the parts is the person of the Son. And one part is the person of the Son. The other part is this human nature. So the human nature is understood as a concrete and complex object. It's not just a set of properties. It's an actual part of the incarnate Christ in his view. Now, because it's not a self... I don't see how it can do things like feel fatigue, pain, and death. Uh, And I take it he means not just feeling death, but actually dying, right? To die a human death, you have to be a human person, you have to lose a human life. And a human nature that's not a human person doesn't have a human life to lose. That's a little bit of his thinking that lies behind this essay. And again, it seems to me the biggest problem there is that he's saying things that require the human nature to be a human being, to be a man. And yet, on his view, it's not, because that would be a second self. And clearly, the New Testament presents only one son, only one Jesus, same one we call Christ in the New Testament. Another problem is, why would you think that there is a human person anywhere in this picture? This, quote, Christ isn't a person. That's the composite whole composed of the two natures. So that can't be a human person. The divine person isn't a human person. It's divine. Then you've got this impersonal human nature, but that's just defined as not a human person. I guess his thought is that somehow because of the mysterious union between the divine and the human nature, the divine nature, that is the eternal son or the divine word, That's going to count as human. I understand that as a credibly orthodox theory, he's going to stipulate that the Son is a real man, but saying it so doesn't make it so. It's hard to see that there is a human being, a human self, in this picture anywhere. But this is typical for two nature's theories. They always are just one short step away from some kind of docetism, And in fact, some two natures theories do seem to be docetism. For instance, what some theologians call the God and Abad theory, that you just have God or the eternal word inhabiting a body, well, that wouldn't seem to make the word a man. So that would only be an apparent man, just as if, say, a demon could kick out a human soul and take over a body. That wouldn't make that demon a man or woman, right? So sometimes people fully intending to be within mainstream tradition, in fact, are docetists. Despite themselves, their views imply that Jesus is just an apparent human. I don't see how Dr. Crisp's theory avoids that problem. Another way that two natures theories edge in the direction of docetism is they just take away a lot of elements of human experience that are typical and so the resulting self just really doesn't seem like us in important respects here dr crisp talks about the incarnate christ feeling the pull of temptation in his human nature i just said well i don't see how the human nature could pull that off if it's not a self with a first person perspective with knowledge with desires and so on But remember, again, the one person here is supposed to be the eternal son, the Word. If you say that that person feels temptation in his human nature, I'm not sure I know what it means unless it entails that that person that we're talking about, the Word, himself feels temptation. Okay, but we've just seen that a divine person should not be able to be tempted for philosophical and biblical reasons. Okay, but if feeling the pull in your human nature doesn't entail that you feel the pull, that you are tempted, I don't know what it means. Unless it means that the human nature is tempted, but then the human nature would have to be, it seems, a human self. And that would be a disastrous interpretation of the New Testament. So there are a lot of difficulties hiding out in this account. Obviously, Dr. Chris isn't going to go into all these agonies in a short, popular piece. So let's get back to that piece and see what he finally is going to say about Jesus being tempted. Okay, so he says the human nature feels the effects of the fall, like fatigue, pain, and death. He writes, But how could this be? One possibility is that Jesus' human nature, though capable of sinning like any other human nature, is prevented from sinning by being united to his divine nature. This would be a bit like packing a fragile glass in foam. The glass is still fragile, it has the capacity to break, but because it is wrapped in the foam packing, it will not break. It is rendered incapable of breaking for all practical purposes. Perhaps the union of Jesus' human nature with his divinity means that his fragile human nature, which is like ours in every way, is rendered incapable of sinning. The divinity of Jesus acts like the foam packing, making it impossible for him to succumb to sin, even though, humanly speaking, he still has that capacity. Still, that seems like a sleight of hand. Does that really resolve the paradox with which we began? Isn't someone who is impeccable really unlike us in important ways? Can such a person really feel the gravitational pull of temptation as we do? Some theologians have suggested that Jesus can feel the gravitational pull of certain sorts of temptations, but not others. He cannot feel the pull of those sorts of temptations that require a person to be in a state of sin to find the thing in question attractive, such as murder or lying. But there are certain sins that don't require that the person tempted is already a sinner, such as defying divine commands. That is what the story of Adam and Eve is about, being tempted to ignore a divine command, sin being the result. This also seems to fit with the New Testament stories about Jesus' temptations. In the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by the devil to deny divine commands, or deny his messianic mission, both of which are tantamount to refusing to do what is asked of him by God. The same is true of his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, like Adam and Eve, it is feasible to feel the gravitational pull of such temptations without being in a state of sin. Okay, so now we're back to talking about God like he's someone other than Jesus, but letting that go? I think these are excellent points he's making here at the end. You don't have to actually be a sinner who's guilty To be tempted, you can have people who have never done anything wrong and so who are not to blame in any way for having done something wrong, and yet those persons could be tempted. And the temptations just are very easy to come by because of human limitations. You might not be smart enough to realize that the thing is inappropriate that you're considering doing, you might realize that it's inappropriate, but Feel you feel like doing it anyway because you're mad or you're hungry or you're tired or even worse, all three of those at the same time. Just the fact that your needs are not met, your social needs, your physical needs, your needs for food and shelter, those things can bring about temptations, right? So if you can be tempted, it follows that you're limited in certain ways. It follows that you're able to succumb to not doing the right thing. But it doesn't follow that you're actually a sinner just by the fact that you're being tempted. So these are all excellent points. But about a sleight-of-hand comment in this analogy of packing a glass in bubble wrap, yeah, I mean, that isn't like our situation, right? It's not like we're able to sin in sort of just a hypothetical sense, but in the actual circumstances we find ourselves, we're completely protected from actually sinning. So kind of theoretically we could, but as things are, actually we can't. That's not like our situation at all. It doesn't seem to be like Jesus' situation at all either. There's nothing analogous to the bubble wrap we see in the stories of his temptations. He just seems to really be exposed to them. And we have to assume that he did feel the gravitational pull. But something I'm not sure that Dr. Crisp appreciates enough is just that feeling that pull implies having limitations that are incompatible with divinity. Again, you're all-knowing, all-powerful. Your well-being doesn't depend on any bodily or physical conditions. Suppose you try to tempt God. Hey, God, why don't you trip that little kid who's trick-or-treating, make her fall down on her face, and then steal her Halloween candy just for the fun of it, and then you can laugh at her as she cries. Like, he can't possibly have a motive to do something like that. He's perfect in morality and he's perfect in rationality and you can't, you know, catch him on a bad day or when he has skipped some meals or, you know, when his football team is lost and he's bent out of shape. There's no way you can get a hook in God. That's why God can't be tempted. He doesn't have the limitations of knowledge or moral character or just kind of physical well-being that make temptations possible for us. So never mind actually sinning, just the second you've got that pull, I think we should know that we're not dealing with a divine being here. To try to tempt him would be a stupid, foolhardy act. It would entail that you didn't know what kind of being you're dealing with. So what's Dr. Crisp's answer to the question of his essay, Was Christ Tempted in Every Way?, Every way, you know, not strictly speaking, I mean, nobody thinks Christ was tempted to, you know, leave a mean comment on social media. But, you know, every general sort of way, we presume, he surely was tempted to look out for himself, to disobey God, to go along with the system of the world, to put his interests over the interests of others. So, yeah, in general sorts of ways, wasn't he tempted just like us and yet without sin? Here's how Dr. Crisp ends up his piece. The temptations of Jesus are the source of serious theological difficulties. How can we make sense of them? As with many deep theological matters, we may understand something of the faith we have been given, but it may be that complete explanation eludes us because we are limited in what we know and how we can grasp the mysteries of the divine nature. Nevertheless, it does seem that there are resources in the Christian tradition for making some headway here so that we may grasp something of what it means to say that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So I guess his final answer is yes, but I admit that there are obvious difficulties with it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some final thoughts about this piece. I agree that there are obvious difficulties. One is how a perfect being could come to see an overall bad action as choice-worthy, because that's what it is to be tempted. I don't think he's dealt with that. Another difficulty that he doesn't get into is just quite what he means by Jesus. He's talking about the temptations of Jesus. And remember, there are three things in his theory. There's the composite Christ that's composed of the human nature and the divine nature. That's not a self. So Christ, if that's what's meant, can't in principle be tempted. And then he's got the human nature, the thing with human limitations like we have, basically, a concrete object with body and soul. That's not a self. And so how could it be tempted? How can it have a first-person point of view and you know knowledge of right and wrong and then feel conflicting motives and have to kind of navigate that through careful use of free choice? No, the human nature is not supposed to be a man, right? Well, that thing couldn't be tempted. Okay, so the only self in the theory is the divine nature, the eternal son, just God himself, if you like. And, well, it seems like that guy couldn't be tempted, right? Because he's divine. So, I don't see a temptable self in this theory of his. The only candidate would seem to be the human nature. I think we need to hear more about why this composite of body and soul, even though it's not a self, could possibly be tempted. If you say, well, I think he was tempted because of his human nature, I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean the eternal son is tempted because he's united with something else which is tempted? That presupposes that this other thing could be tempted. But that presupposes, I think, that this other thing is an intelligent agent that could sin or avoid sin. And yeah, if we've got one of those, we've got two selves in Jesus, which is one too many. So I like this ending. I don't think Dr. Crisp's answer is satisfactory in the end. But he closes with mystery, but he doesn't open with it. He takes an honest crack at trying to solve the difficulty I would suggest they need to go further and reconsider what scriptural grounds there are for, quote, the full deity of Christ, or saying that Christ has a divine nature. Again, that's not an obvious teaching in Scripture. On the other hand, Jesus' temptation is an obvious teaching of Scripture. And as we've seen in this episode, it seems to be assumed or implied in the New Testament that he could have sinned but didn't. That's why he's presented in the Gospels as a model of faith in God and as a faithful servant of God who passed the tests and was rewarded for this heroic run that he had. To me, this topic of temptation just fits better with what people call a biblical Unitarian Christology than it does with any two natures theory. It's like the New Testament theme of Jesus' faith It just easily fits this Christology, but not the traditional two natures theories. Again, it's like the New Testament theme that Jesus truly died. It's hard to account for that on a two natures theory. It's easy to account for that on a biblical Unitarian view of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you have to consider the traditional arguments for the deity of Christ. I grant that. But at the end of the day... This scriptural fact of Jesus' real temptation seems like an obstacle to a successful two-natures theory. Serious theological difficulties? Yes. This is a clear, carefully reasoned, and intellectually honest piece. Whether the theory that he's out to defend best fits scripture is, of course, a bigger question. But check out the piece for yourself. I've got the link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And I hope we see more pieces like this in Christianity today and in other popular venues. Evangelicals deserve this kind of intellectual integrity that goes beyond just standard language and pet answers, that takes risks, that makes actual commitments that one can agree with or disagree with. And I would suggest that more analytic theologians should try to follow Dr. Crisp's example here. week's thinking music has been the track stage one level 24 by mon as always there's a link where you can listen to or download this entire track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org